Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Vincent Deluard of Stonex. We're going to be talking about value. We're going to be talking about gold. We're going to be talking about the MAGA stocks and what the next 10 years is going to look like coming up right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Vincent, you're from Stonex. What's your role at Stonex and what is so- Stonex? So sure. So uh, I'm the director for uh, global macro strategy uh, at Stonex. So my role is uh, um, to try to come up with something interesting to say about markets every week, um, which seems easy, but is a lot harder than it seems because uh, a lot of people uh, think they have interesting to say, things to say about the market. Um, so it's, it's a crowded field. Uh, so we advised. Um, um, pension funds, institutional investors uh, on topics like asset allocation, sector selection, country rotation. I do roadshows, presentation. I write uh, a report every week, which you know I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss later. Uh, and in general, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's I don't tell my employer, but I would probably do it even if I were not paid because that's. That's what I've been doing all my life. That's what I enjoy doing. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to do that. Um, as far as StoneX, uh, StoneX is probably the, the biggest firm you never heard of. Uh, it's actually a Fortune 100 company where um, I work for the broker dealer division, um, but we're a global financial service firm. Uh, we have a big commodities group uh, with whom I work sometimes. So I, I go to places like, like Kansas City and, and St. Louis and, and actually meet a lot of very smart people there. Um, um, we have a big uh, currency management unit, and then I work uh, for the securities group. Um, lately, most of my clients have been Latin America. Uh, I work a lot with, with pension funds in, in Chile, Peru, uh, Brazil, uh, Colombia, and it's really given me a, a very interesting perspective, uh, very focused on, on real stuff, whether it's, it's commodities, grains, ags, um, and... Um, yeah, the firm's been growing very fast. Um, we are, um, you know, listed on the NASDAQ, the ticker symbol of SNEX, and, and I think we're 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 doing good. I uh, I love the 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 notes that you write, and uh, I as I was telling you before we we, we went live, I uh, read through and laugh every time I read them because I I find them. Uh, you and I, mostly because you and I, I agree with you on most of the things that we're going to talk about in a moment. Let's let's start with an easy one: inflation, uh, transitory or here to stay, and why? <laughs> well, um, I think you know today. Today is a good day uh, for, for me uh, because the um, um, it's not transitory. Uh, would be my answer, and, and we're starting to see. Uh, I mean, it's possible that we get a soft patch, you know, just because of base effect. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the next uh, couple of reports um, are a little, so little slow down. But, but I base, think base effect in the sense that a year ago or 15 months ago now was, was a, 
was like the the low of the of the whole uh, COVID crash. Correct, correct, and I think that's part of the, you know, even in the way you frame the question, um, you know, the answer is both, right? I mean, it's it's transitory and secular, and and I think there's a level of dishonesty in in the Fed when when they mention, oh, it's all base effect, and yes, these things are here. I mean, no one's questioning that. Uh, but you have also other secular dynamics. So my outlook for inflation is, yes, right now, indeed, I, I kind of agree that the, the biggest driver of inflation is what you're describing, which is a year-over-year effect on the commodity. I mean, you know, it was not so long ago we had negative oil prices. Today we're above 70, so infinite growth rate, uh, and it's lumber, and it's copper, and it's semiconductors, I mean, all the things you you know. Uh, so that's that's what's hurting right now. Uh, but, you know, and, and yes, maybe some of that will subside. By the way, I'm not sure it will fully subside. I, I think, for example, if you get a price of oil, yeah, sure, we're not, we're not, we went from minus 40 to 70, so we're not, I don't think we're going to go to 150, uh, in it, but I could very easily see oil prices stay in that 70, 80s range. Uh, same thing with a lot of commodities. We have these kind of structural supply issues that, that will not get solved. Um, so, you know, the fact that it's a lot of it is from commodities doesn't mean it's going to go away. Uh, it's going to slow down. But then I think what's, what's going to happen as we progress towards the year is we'll see this almost smooth, seamless transition between this cyclical inflation and secular inflation. Secular inflation being driven by things such as, you know, labor shortages, uh, wage price spiral, of rents, uh, like the stickier parts of the CPI are going to take over. And, and I would stress that uh, the these things matter a lot more. Uh, I mean, commodities like what, 10% of the CPI, shelter is 40%. Um, so people love to point out that, oh, it's all because of oil prices, you know, take that off. Well, what people don't realize is we had the exact other effect on the shelter part of the CPI, uh, because as a result of COVID, we had all these rent moratoriums. So we've seen massive disinflation in, in, in rents. Um, so rents used to be running at 4% pre-COVID, they fell to 1%. Uh, and, and you know how the Fed computes this, I call it a BS number, but you know they call it the owner's adjusted rent equivalent. Uh, really that, which effectively tracks rents, not the Sheila, uh, the K-Sheila index, which, which I think is wrong because at the end of the day, people, you know, when you buy a house, you, you pay the market price, you don't pay the, the Fed construct, but whatever, let's not even get into that. The point is, you know, that fell from four to one. Now I hear a lot of people say, you got to take out the old, the commodities because it's a COVID story uh, and it's overestimating. I hear no one saying, well, you got to correct for, for the rents and then the rents we know is going to correct because, you know, of course the moratorium is going to end in the fall. And, you know, if, if you've been in, you know, in the market for buying a home, I mean, you're in LA, I mean, you know, even, I mean, now it's everywhere. It used to be the big cities. Now it's everywhere. So, um, so yeah, I think the, the, the story of the next decade is going to be secular inflation. Uh, and we had the very dawn of it and we had what, four months of it. Uh, but before that, we we're 40 years of disinflation. So in, uh, as far as where portfolios are, where investors are, where risk is, uh, we are at the very, very early stage of this move. One of your one of your notes has the seven best arguments against inflation, and uh, one of the one of the the second point that you raise this labor slack. Just anecdotally, I've been you know driving around or or on the Twitter or on the internet, you see 
lots of references to people having difficulty hiring and having difficulty hiring at old rates. So they may have to hire at higher, at pay more to hire. What's, what's driving that? Um, I think part of it, I mean, the common answer is, uh, you know, government paying people to stay home and watch Netflix, uh, which, you know, it's kind of a, a Fox News talking point. Um, I mean, there's some truth to that, but um, to me, to me, like, I think it's, it's changes in behavior from COVID, uh, structural changes. Um, I, one study that I thought was eye-opening found that Americans took, uh, I think it was two pounds per month of lockdown. Um, so, I mean, you know, in California, we're, we're of lockdown. Uh, so that that's about, you know, 22 pounds that people took. And I mean, you are starting from a base of a population where you have about 30, 40% of the population that's, you know, morbidly obese. Um, and that, that can be debilitating. And I mean, anyone who struggled with weight loss knows that, you know, it's not just because uh, you can take off the mask that suddenly the, <laughs> you're going to lose the weight. Uh, so another stat that I found scary was on mental health. Uh, 40% of teenagers uh, report struggling with severe anxiety or depression. And again, these, these, are, these are debilitating disease. Um, and then this is not just because, you know, Mr. Fauci say, you know, oh, you can go out now, it's all good, that that's going to go away. So I think we're, we're going to be scarred by COVID for, for a very long time. And um, the labor market coming out is going to be very different from the labor market coming in. Um, that's why I think there's a bit of a bad faith when, when you hear like Neil Kashkari or some of the doves of the Fed say, well, you know, cannot have inflation because the unemployment rate is 6% and we're at three and a half before COVID. Uh, so we, we're going to run that baby hard until we get to three and a half. Um, well, that assumes, you know, all else equal, Keteris Paribus. Uh, it's not Keteris Paribus. Um, the labor market has changed. And I think the that fictional thing that economists talk, the, the NERU, non-inflation accelerating rate of unemployment, natural rate of unemployment, which you know you only know after the fact. I think before it's probably possible that the Fed overestimated the NERU, we could go lower, but now it's probably underestimating, meaning that the, the, the true NERU is higher than what it is because people have struggled from the pandemic. And also some people have just changed their priorities. It's like, hey, you know, I don't need to work anymore. Like I, you know, I, I figured out a way. I, you know, I rent something on Airbnb. I can drive an Uber here and there. I need to take care of my kids. I need to take care of my parents. You know, th th this is a kind of a major event that would change people's behavior. And, and the Fed, again, we, we don't have a precedent, we don't have a model for that. So I think the Fed is just ignoring it. Uh, I will also stress one last thing about the labor market is a structural shift that, that was pre-COVID, but that was accelerated by COVID is the rise of the gig economy. And I think that changes the dynamic and the Phillips curve. Um, so historically, I think the, the the intuition behind the Fed's dual mandate is you have this trade off between inflation and unemployment. It's basically, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. So once once the you know once the economy uh, uh, goes into recession, people don't have a job uh, because they don't have a job. They they start like. Uh, bargaining less for wage and, 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 and wages fall. And that's the, the regulation mechanism of the economy. You know, I can argue it's a very barbaric one. I, I would say it is like we, you know, it's kind of sad that in order to run the economy, we need to threaten, you know, 20% of the population with starvation. But that's, that's how it's been for, you know, 
millennials. Uh, but again, the labor market has changed. It's no longer this kind of black and white employment and employment thing. Now you have this gray zone of gigs, right? So you lose your job. Well, if I, I can just log on my cell phone and register, sign up to be a, a Uber driver, I'll be one, I can start driving tomorrow or DoorDash. So you have this, 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 this gray area where people, you know, I think if people lose their job, then they're not going to come back to take a job for like 10 bucks an hour because they have that option. Uh, and that's, gonna, that's going to change the, 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 the Phillips curve. And I would argue that's going to make it less elastic. One of the arguments that you put forth that I found reasonably uh, compelling is that there is going to be this um, deflation as a result of technology, which just does seem to have been the case over very long periods of time. What, why is that not a valid argument? It is a valid argument. It is uh, over time. That's the that's the main reason why you know prices don't go through the moon is because humans are smart and knowledge is cumulative and, and we get better at doing stuff and and historically shortages you know of, of stuff have been replaced by human creativity. I mean, you can think about the industrial revolution, like, you know, England ran out of wood. So they had to decor. Oh, coal was better, better source of energy than wood. And then, you know, you move to the, the oil age and, and then maybe you're going to move to the renewable age. So yes, um, I believe in that over the long term, over the short term, I, I don't I do not really see it. If anything, I see this this massive push to go into renewable as extremely resource intensive, at least initially, because um, you got to redo the grid. Uh, you got, you know, if you look at a windmill, I mean, it's a lot of steel, um, battery, you know, it's a lot of cobalt, it's a lot of nickel, um, things that, by the way, that we don't have a lot of. We don't know how to, you know, because it, these things are fairly new, at least in terms of the volumes that we're going to need. So even even if you want to be a techno utopian and then think we're going to go all drive electrical vehicles and, and renewable, there's going to be massive investments required to do that. And it will be inflationary first, deflationary later. So you, you've made a pretty compelling argument, I think, for inflation. What do investors do when they're confronted with this? So you, you've written a note where you break it down by asset sector factor and some stocks. But let's talk about what from an asset allocation perspective, how do you approach a problem like that? Well, I think the first thing that investors need to realize and, and seriously think about is what I call the nuclear winter of the 60-40 portfolio. So the 60-40 portfolio has really been the bread and butter of our industry. And, and frankly, a lot of people have gotten very wealthy doing very working very little in the asset management industry because, yeah, things just went up. You know, what was it that... Uh, Four, four, four for bankers, right? You you, you charge at I don't know four percent on on uh, on loans. Um, I, I know I forgot the other one, and then you you on the golf course by four p.m. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of how it's been in the asset management industry. Yeah, okay, give me your money. I'll buy stocks and bonds. And don't look at it. I'll charge a one percent management fee, and we'll all be good. Um, I think it's over. Uh, it's over just because the 40 is, is irremediably broken. The, the, the bond allocation is, I mean, I was looking at VBTIX, which is the, uh, the world largest bond uh, mutual fund by, by Vanguard. Um, and I found that 99.9% of these bonds yield less than 4.5%. Now, why do you use 4.5%? Because that is the return assumption that Vanguard builds in its target date retirement calculator. So they tell you, 
come retire with us, you're going to earn 4.5%, but then they put you in a fund where 99.9% of the bonds earn less than that. So it's, it's a joke. Uh, the other part that's broken in that 60-40 portfolio is a negative correlation between the two assets. So, you know, for a long time now, yields have been low, right? But you would still want bonds because of the diversification, right? You were not getting much return, but because you reduce the volatility of your stocks, you still improve your risk-adjusted return, you're sharp, and you could even add on leverage because of that. Well, for the first time in about 20 years now, the training six-month correlation between stocks and treasuries is positive. And again, this is what you see in an inflation environment. This is the norm. I mean, there's nothing normal about the prior environment or this one or whatever. Uh, that thing flips based on, on, on inflation. And in the 70s, in the 80s, all the way up to the mid-90s, stocks and bonds were positively correlated, which is where we are today. Um, so which means that, you know, more likely we're going to see both stocks and bonds drop at the same time. And people who are in 60-40 or even leverage version of it, which I would argue is what disparity is, uh, are going to be facing losses on both sides of the, of the portfolio. So that's the first lesson. Second lesson, obviously, is to underweight bonds and, 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 and long duration. Um, I think duration is the biggest risk in your portfolio. And I think duration is a very creepy thing. People think of duration only as a 30-year bond. No, you have a lot of duration in biotech. You have duration in, in, in many of the growth names. You have Mac, maybe the longest duration asset could be Tesla, or it could be even, you know, the 50% of the Russell 2000 index that doesn't have any earnings is not even able to cover their interest expense. Uh, so you have a lot of duration hidden, even the duration of bond indices has increased again, because agents respond to incentives. So when you have flat yield curves and very low yields, people take on debt and they take long term debt. So if you look for duration of the uh, emerging market bond index, all time high duration of the junk bond all time high also. So that is I think the biggest risk is duration. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of assets, so you, you take off bonds. I mean, and we'll go, I, there are areas that I like. I like Latin America, for example, I think short term, Mexico, Brazil, you know, you, you get, you know, potential for currency upside, uh, re-rating, but that's very narrow. I also like um, some of the Asia, um, the Chinese government bonds and, and smaller markets around it, but that's not gonna, you know, that's not a 40% type of your portfolio. Um, and then we go to stocks. Um, you know, stocks initially do fairly well when you have a bit of inflation, and I think that's that's due to the inflation illusion something Keynes wrote about. You know, at the beginning of inflation, you know, oh, I'm getting richer, I'm getting a pay raise. You know, so everybody's happy, which I think is kind of where we are. And then, uh, you know, you realize, oh, everybody else is getting a pay raise, <laughs> and price of grocery store twenty percent higher. So then, but in, in that initial phase, which is where we are. Uh, you know, inflation feels good, and 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 stock multiples typically peak when inflation goes from two to four percent, which is you know up until yesterday. Now we're at five, but before we're at four. Uh, and then after that, if you look at the relation between stock multiples and 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 inflation, it starts falling because people realize, oh, inflation is here, margins are going to compress, and then. Generally, just a, again, the duration argument, I think inflation shrinks the time horizon, increases the preference for the present, and any long duration assets, which stocks are, uh, end up suffering from inflation. I actually, um, I went to, um, one of the difficulty about inflation is that um, most of the data that we, we use for back tests is, you know, less than 40 years old, right? It's, it's very hard to run a, and, and, and we had 40 years of disinflation. So most people do not even have the ability to test what inflation is for. So I was lucky, I went to the uh, Fama and French website on the, the uh, Dartmouth, 
And they've actually reported industry returns always in the 1920s, which got me four inflationary episodes. Um, the one during World War II, uh, the one during the Korean War, the one in the 70s, and then the, the little bout that we had between 2003, 2008. Um, and I found that of the 30 industries that they have, 27 have a negative correlation of inflation. That's kind of my point. Like inflation is bad. I mean, I feel I should not have to say that, but the, the markets clearly doesn't seem to understand that. So I'm going to, for most industries, inflation is bad. I mean, the only three that had a positive relation were like coal, which no one wants to touch right now, um, oil and gas, and I think wholesaler was the third one. Uh, the one that had the most negative relation to inflation was automakers, which I find interesting in the context of, of one large electric, um, electric vehicle manufacturer. Uh, because, you know, car manufacturing, you know, your cogs, cost of goods sold are like, you know, 80% of your and selling price so like you don't have that much leeway like if, if the price of steel goes up your margins go and it's also a very competitive industry like you know back in the 70s we had the european after we had the, we had the japanese i mean it's, it's an industry of oversupply low pricing power uh so so yeah by and large i don't think stocks are going to be a good hedge against inflation obviously within stocks i prefer materials i prefer gold miners i prefer energy but these are tiny like the energy sector is two percent of the s p 500 so the, the stuff that will benefit from reflation is going to be outweighed by the by the long duration complex in the stock market. And I think as a whole, inflation is going to be negative. What about from a factor perspective? You, you, you took a pretty close look at that. And I thought there was some, there was some interesting uh, outcomes from that. Yeah. So... Um, the one that works best during, uh, during inflationary period is value, uh, which, you know, that's why I raised it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You need all the love you can. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think it's going back to the duration argument that ultimately, um, I think, you know, if you think, if you, if you thought it's duration of stock, like you would have a bomb, value stocks are low duration. They're low duration because of the high dividend yield means you get your capital back faster, right? It's kind of like, you know, the duration of a bond with high coupon is lower than that with a, with a bullet bond. So same thing. And then also you get your, some of that, some of that value is immediately realized because you, you're getting a low price to book, right? So you're, the assets, you know, that you have right away, you're, you're getting a claim on, on real assets that you can cash today, as opposed to growth stocks where the cash flows are going to come far out in the future. And then even the, the assets, which most often are intangible, uh, will only materialize their value later. So when, when rates go lower and, and yield curves flatten, that helps growth. Conversely, when you have inflation, uh, steeper yield curves and higher rates, that helps value. So I think that's the reason why you see the, the value anomaly uh, fair. And by the way, I'm not sure about the term anomaly. If you look at the Pharma French data, um, uh, most of the returns from the value factors came from these short periods of inflation, the 1970s and the early 2000s. So um, I would not say that it's anomaly, it's just you know a normal kind of ebb and flow inflation favors value, deflation favors growth. We, we came from 40 years of deflation, uh, now we're switching, uh, and I think that's why you're gonna see value do better. Uh, the other one that, that I find interesting is momentum. And um, I, I have my doubt about the Pharma French study, but every academics you know, quotes it, so I'm, I'm, you know, clearly I don't have a Nobel Prize, so uh, I'm not gonna question them here, but the, the, the return that the momentum fact, they found for the momentum actually is so high that I find it hard to believe, you know, it's like 8% 8, 8 analyzed alpha, whatever. Uh, but let's assume that's right. 
momentum worked in both value, uh, sorry, both inflation and deflation. I think the reason is because momentum is not really a factor. It's, it's a chameleon, right? Momentum by definition goes with what works best. So for the past 40 years, momentum got you into uh, big tech, the platforms, the biotech and so forth. But as we're doing this transition, momentum is shifting. You can see that in the, the largest momentum ETF, MTUM, um, a massive rotation, you know, I just rebalanced. I think, um, you know, three months ago, it was 80% big tech, pharma, work from home, like the, the pandemic stuff. And then now it's, you know, banks, energy, material. And I think that that adds water to my meal, the fact that the momentum strategies now are picking up the value factor and, you know, you'll have this intersection value is going to be momentum and you know, it'll be a little bit like a, like a snowball. Uh, one of the things that you point out as being a potential beneficiary of uh, an inflationary environment is the U S healthcare, uh, the companies that sell into that system. So can you t take us through that argument? Yeah. So I just, okay. So I, I kind of have this philosophical view before that I mean, I hate the U.S. healthcare system, but I think <laughs> I hate it because it's so good at squeezing money out of patients. Uh, and I, I do think that over the next, it seems to me that every decade is defined by one macro theme. So, you know, when I came of age, uh, the big story was the internet and uh, TMT. And that was the story in the 90s. And, you know, that that's what that's what drove your returns for for a decade after that in the 2000s the big story was uh the rise of china emerging markets the BRICS, commodities all of that at once uh so that was a that was a, another decade and then 2010s it was kind of coming back to the 90s but with a more pro-business pro-platform instead of like the wide-eyed optimism it was like you know the facebook and the google and like the big tech platforms i think healthcare is going to be that for the 2020s like just because of demography because of patterns government spending um uh, because of even people's preferences, especially after COVID, the importance of health. I think we have this massive crisis in, in, in how we eat, how we live. Uh, so that's kind of my view that healthcare is going to be the, uh, the driver of secular returns uh, for the next decade. Um, so, but specifically on the point of inflation, I came to healthcare just by running a, a, a screen on Bloomberg. So uh, I looked for, my view was like, I call that the pricing power portfolio. I wanted to look for companies which had expanding margin despite rising costs. So meaning you have you have inflation in your costs, but you're able to pass it to your customers and some more. I looked for companies which paid a dividend because you know when you have inflation, you want dividend because dividends grow and, and coupons do not. So you, you can think about a, a swap between you know uh, an asset that's growing and one that's fixed. That's a good thing. I looked for companies that had a lot of long-term debt because if I'm right about inflation, that long-term debt is going to be to be is going to be paid out by inflation. Like canceled out. Uh, so that's a good deal. And finally, I look for also companies that had some financial resilience, meaning that they had a high interest coverage ratio, which you know, that was really to weed out a lot of the kind of small caps, Russell 2000 like companies where you have a lot of debt, but you don't have the cash flow to support it. So I ended up with a portfolio of about 70 stocks, which is called pricing power portfolio. And 60% of that was into healthcare. And I am 
and that 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 fits well with my experience because the pricing power of healthcare is infinite. I mean, we're talking joking earlier about our experiences being foreigners and having babies in the U.S. and I mean, I still remember when I had my first baby. I mean, literally, you know, I have the I have the child in my arms, like he's bloody and screaming. Get a call. What's your credit card number? It's a hundred thousand, no, eighty, sorry, eighty thousand, eighty thousand. Man, I, I almost dropped the baby. Like I, I come from France, you know. Like I mean, I, I've never had to settle a bill like eighty thousand. And so then, anyway, then I asked for an itemized bill. Um, you know, they, they, they couldn't even itemize it because you know it's a BS number, right? So then they 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 they, they, they put stuff or you know we, we did this. We, no, no, you didn't do that. I was there. I, I mean, my wife was there. That's the definition of the birth. Like I, I know these things didn't happen. Uh, but then they're like, why why are you arguing here? You you, you got insurance. You, you you're out of pocket is already done. Like you know, it's not your money. I'm like, yeah, maybe it's me being French, but like I was like, no, no, I I just don't like being you know, take advantage of. But anyway, long story short, that the in healthcare, prices is not driven by inputs. It's driven by the power relation between uh, the predator, which is the hospital in this case, and the prey, which is the patient. Uh, and uh, and that power relation is not going to change. I mean, if you look at, at the healthcare CPI over time versus the regular CPI, it keeps going up. Uh, I think it's also an area where you're going to keep seeing more money. I mean, spending money on healthcare, it's, it's kind of like the for Catholics, you know, do, going to confession. Doesn't accomplish much, but you feel better after that, for politi- like, especially for Democrats. Oh, let, let's put more money into healthcare. I, everybody happy with that uh, and, and it's also a way I think you know when people think about the stimulus like they have this kind of 1930s view of it the Tennessee Valley Authority going to build down it's going to now now you live in LA I'm in San Francisco how long have we been talking about that high-speed train between between our two cities like 30 years you know I think they, they, they'd be like five miles between Modesto and Stockton I mean this is not the age of, of big infrastructure investment I mean you got the NIMBY you got the environment none of that stuff's going to happen if we're going to run these like you know three four trillion dollar deficits every year the easiest way to spend money is either bailing out states or spending on healthcare. And in a way, it's good. Healthcare spending is good. Like it's good middle-class jobs that don't go to China, pays good benefits. So politically, it's, it's a smart thing to do. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, the, uh, the thing that we haven't really discussed that I really want to chat to you about, let's talk about this is an extremely expensive market. What are the chances that we go into some sort of bear market? And how, how do you think about that? process i i think about it a lot with with great uh apprehension and, and and great confusion about what i see in the market right now um so yeah i mean you look at any valuation measure whether it's uh Dobbins q stock market cap to gdp shila p i mean we're, we're we're way higher than we were even back in march 2000 not only that but it's also more widespread, right? 2000, you had, you know, the, the growth complex was expensive, but the value stuff was okay. Like, you know, in the bear market, if you if you own value stuff, you actually did fine. Um, not so much today. Um, I mean, I, I can think energy and material is still cheap, but outside of that, it's it's really widespread overvaluation. Um, and and it's, to, it's to a level that's absurd. So I think you're referring to a study that I, I put out on Twitter recently on what I call the hyper growth stocks. So I was thinking about um, a certain actively managed ETF uh, with a very charismatic uh, portfolio manager. Um, 
and you know talking about you know this amazing technological revolution that that's going to happen and you want to you want to get it now it's growth at any cost right the, the idea is you know if you bought amazon 20 years ago didn't matter what else you do just because of that you'd be rich today so let's find an amazon and let's just do that so i'm like okay fine you know i am actually somewhat positive on some of the technological stuff i'm in agreement with our crowd i think it will happen it will be amazing the question is can you capture these returns by buying stocks today that's the question i want to answer and my answer was no so what i did is i look at all the stocks that trade as more than 10 times sales i call that the hyper growth stocks uh, there's about a couple of hundreds in the U.S. right now. Uh, and then I projected on that the growth path of Microsoft, Apple, Google, and, and Amazon. And what growth are we talking about? I mean, these guys have seen them, their revenues multiply by 56 in 17 years. I mean, think about this. This is everything that I learned about economics was shattered, you know, the, the, the diseconomies of scale, uh, uh, marginally decreasing return, uh, margin tendencies to the mean. These guys have grown revenue so much and still they maintain 20 to 30% profit margin, in some cases increasing. I mean, these are extraordinary companies. And again, it's a unique time, right? It's rise of the internet, rise of the e-commerce, uh, complete failure of antitrust to investigate or do anything. What, what a period. So I put that on and I say, okay, these, these, these hyper growth companies are going to follow the path of Google or Amazon. And then that composite. And then I'm going to assume that because they're so good, they're going to trade the same valuation at the end of the high growth period as um, the MAGA stocks today, Microsoft, Apple, whatever. And then I discounted that by 10% to the present to get a result. So I got two things. One, for 20 companies, the result that I got was so absurd that it made no sense. Like the, you know, their, their sales would be bigger than US GDP. So that's not going to happen. And then for another 60, I found that the current market value was higher than that. So the market was already discounting an Amazon like scenario and some. And, and then you gotta you gotta pause here and you gotta be like 60 Amazon in a year. I mean, it took us four decades to get four of these companies, and they're arguably the four most successful businesses since maybe Standard Oil or the, the, the East Indian company. I mean, how, how is that going to happen? It can't. It can't. So we're confronting, we're confronting an extremely expensive market. Uh, the, the, the interesting part of the market, which has been the, the hyper-growth SaaS stocks, MAGA-type stocks, uh, seem to have there's little room left to run in there. How do you hedge that portfolio? What's the way to, how do you protect yourself? What do you do? Well, it's, it's very, very hard, right? Because traditionally your hedge was long-term treasuries and that's not working. So, uh, and I don't think it's going to work because of that outlook on inflation. So 60, 40 is not going to work. Now you, you go to other, you go to other attorneys like, well, I can buy puts, right? And I don't know if you've done some of that. I have spank premium every month. <laughs> <laughs> never happens the market never corrects and also that the implied value is quite high um you know i don't I, typically at a market peak you should be looking at a vix of like 10 12 you know we're, we're in the 20s you know maybe a little less today but you know generally we've been we've been pretty high and especially if you look at at uh, out of the money puts uh, skew are very expensive skew index and all-time high so paying premium that's the most efficient hedge right obviously you know because if it falls you get your money but that is very expensive so that's not a good solution uh and then if you look at 
even traditional risk-off assets, um, not so great. Um, so if you look at the, you know, people don't haven't noticed because there have been very few corrections, but I actually ran a study of looking at how various risk-off assets have performed when the markets dropped by more than 1%. And so I run it for the gold, treasure, long-term treasuries, the yen, uh, the Swiss franc, and Bitcoin. And this year, all of them fell when the market fell. Um, I mean, personally, I still like gold. Maybe it's my my ideological bias, so I, I'm willing to give gold a pass. I don't know why, but um, but the uh, yeah, it's it's harder. I think you know, and and that, that's what typically happens when people talk about crypto being uncorrelated. I mean, an asset is uncorrelated until it becomes so successful that then you get institutional adoption and then it becomes correlated. So people are kind of extrapolating from the past, which I think is wrong. Uh, so, but it is going to be very, very difficult to, to hedge. Uh, the one thing I would suggest though, is taking a broader view of risk rather than thinking of risk as like, you know, a two strong deviation move in the S&P 500 daily return. What are truly the risks of 2021? And I, with a list of five, uh, rising yields, rising spreads, rising inflation, stock market decline, or blow up of the growth complex. And for every sector, I ran a regression analysis to see how, how these things respond to these, to these risks. And I took the sum of all these five risks and look at what protect, protected you best. And what I found was the best protection came from the most cyclical stuff in a way, energy, materials, uh, commodities. Um, but also the cheapest stuff, uh, which is which is I think the great news is that you know buying hedges is if you have this extended vision of risk, not just you know a one percent decline in the S and P five hundred. Actually, the big risk, which is you know rising inflation and associated consequences, you can hedge that with with inflation sensitive assets, which are still cheap. Conversely, the things that had the most exposure to risk to these five risks were technology and consumer discretionary, where we've seen the biggest runs, the most expensive stocks. So that is to me the greatest news. The only piece of good news for investors in 2021 is that if they understand risk correctly, they realize that hedging that risk is cheap. Um, and, and also, these are also the sectors where you get the most earnings growth. So it's it's very, I think, you know, more than half of the earnings growth in the S&P 500 next year is going to come from energy and materials, you know, coming back from very low base, of course. But uh, so I can see this complex where you have protection, cheap valuation, positive earnings growth. I mean, this is really the trifecta. You really see the stars align so well. That sounds like a reasonable argument for value uh, over the next sort of period of time. Not that I want to talk my own book too much, but that, that does sound like a pretty good setup for value. It does. It does. And um, yeah, like I said, we, we had, we had, you know, what, four or five months of, of since November, maybe like the, the election and the vaccine news. So all right, six months, um, you know, we had 40 years of decline before that. So uh if you think about the cycle as, as this long-term pendulum swing, I mean, we, we barely started the move. Um, and indeed, if, if you have to have an equity portfolio, uh, I think value because of its low duration, because of its sector exposure is probably gonna keep you out of trouble. So I would expect the, the market correction to play out very much like the 2000s when you know the NASDAQ was down 80, uh, the S&P was on 50, but you know if you only looked at value, you were barely down on the year and then you recovered a lot faster. 
I think uh, while Valley's had a pretty good run since whatever it was, September or November last year, it seems to have stalled out a little bit over the last month. That's been my sort of observation and the market feels a lot frothier and more speculative recently. Why do you think that might have happened? I, I think part of, and I I don't really have a good answer, but I, I've noticed that I think that the value and the performance comes from the fact that yields kind of have topped out quite a bit, you know, like, you know, 1.6 and then 1.5, you know, um, and I think if you look at the growth to value performance seems to follow uh, yield, especially the, I think part of it is because financial is such a big part of value indices and financials respond to the, the slope of the yield curve. So as that, as that has fallen, value has done less well. Um, I I think you know just be patient. Things things are never linear. Um, you know, obviously you'll get pause, you'll get pullbacks. Um, I'm I'm thinking of gold right now. I mean, you had a you know you had a big pullback from gold too, right? From two thousand to one thousand seven hundred. Well, now we're back. You know, you know. 2000 is close again. So if anything, I think that would be a time to kind of accumulate uh, uh, more, more, more so than selling. Do you have a view on the, on the gold? Uh, it's the commodity versus the miners. Does, do, do, does either perform better in the sort of environment that we might go into? Yeah. So typically, I mean, miners are the most leverage you can think of on inflation, right? Because uh, obviously they, they tie to the price of gold, but and financial leverage on top. Um, one is um, um, the relative, the inflation of mining costs versus the price of gold. So you want to invest in gold miners when gold prices are rising faster than the input cost of gold. And, and so far that seems to be the case. So I'm not too worried. Like you want them to be able to preserve their margin, but it could be that five, 10 years on the road because of labor costs, because of shortage of steel, yada, yada, that that dynamic is going to change. For now, it's not a problem. Uh, second thing is discipline, uh, capital, uh, capital allocation. I mean, typically gold mining industry, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. It's a bunch of cowboys. You know, they have, you know, money burns a hole in their pocket and, you know, they have a, they have a dollar to spend 10. Uh, that's been, that's what the industry's done for the past 20 years, but the market has really chastised them. And we've seen, you know, massive consolidation over the past decade, big focus on returning capital, paying dividends. So again, not a risk. And then the last part is valuations. Obviously with any investment, you know, the, your, your return is going to depend in large part from the price you pay to get in. Uh, and I would argue that, you know, multiples in the gold sector are not too high. You know, you can find like good, very solid company trading for like, you know, 12, 13 times cash flow, which, you know, compared to the rest of the market, it is a bargain, especially if, if you think as I do that its cash flow is going to increase massively uh, in the next decade. That's that's fantastic. Uh, Vincent, we're coming up on time. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that? Um, so Twitter is the best. I mean, that's, you know, I don't like big tech, but I, I got to say Twitter is, 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 is where it's at for, for finance. Uh, my handle is at, at Vincent, V-I-N-C-E-N-T, W-R-D-E-L-U-A-R-D. Uh, so you can follow me there. Uh, if you go to my pin tweet, there is an, um, they have a link where people can sign up for a free trial of my work. Uh, we get, we grant it to everybody. You don't have to be an institutional investor. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, 
um, and then you can you can DM me, uh, and then you can reach um, if you trade commodities, if you trade uh, futures, if you trade stocks. Uh, Stonex is, you know, that's the best way, right? If you already have a relation with us, and um, you know, uh, we'll be very happy to get you on my list or, or to get you to talk to some of my colleagues on the trading side who can who can help you open an account. Vincent Deliard, Stonex, thank you very much, sir. My pleasure.